Coming to you from the last video store in the universe, it's Binge Movies, episode 152. I'm Jason. This is the show that ranks, eliminates movies to determine which ones are most worthy of preservation for all time, even beyond the end time. On this episode, we rank the top grossing movies of 2002, 10 I through like 6. Good gracious, that's the motivation. Partation, fire, choke, look for the right time. Shoot my team, you know, it for the right time. Flash and then I'm, I'm leaving. Please believe in a... Binge Lords, I am here. It is a sweltering 80 degrees the dog days of VHS Summer 3 here in sunny and tropical Akron, Ohio. I had to find a guest with an extensive CV. And part of the part of the credentials that this guest had to have is they have to come from a climate that is even more intemperate than Akron, Ohio. I'm talking about the variable climate, variable temperatures of Houston, Texas, maybe the hottest place in hell. According to my guest, who is, who are you, sir? Oh, hi. Uh, very, very awesome introduction. And uh, we're going to talk more about it a little bit uh, about that. <laughs> but uh, hey, y'all. Uh, my name is uh, Nguyen Le, and uh, it is a pleasure to be here. Now, as a thoroughly white gentleman, an Americanized gentleman, help me pronounce your name. So that you're not offense, so that you are not offended at me or our guest when they contact you on Twitter, because you will be getting contacted by people on Twitter after this episode drops. Um, Guide okay. us, teach us. Okay, so uh, let's start with the easy one. Uh, my yeah. last name is Le, not Lee. Yeah, although okay. it, although it, it, it is nice to you know. You know, depending on the day, depending on the mood, it's kind of nice to be related to Bruce Lee, but no. (laughs) If it's it's L.E., then it's Lay. So it's kind of like the, I think, what you call the, uh, you know, the the flower thing. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Okay. uh, Yeah, so it's Lay. And uh, so the not-so-easy part is, well, my first name. It's uh, N-G-U-Y-E-N. It's Win. So... Win. I mean, try again. Win, lay. There Win, we lay. go. All there right. Go. Nine out of ten. They're not yes, bad. Okay. And you are of Vietnamese descent, correct? Yes, I am of Vietnamese descent. Very proud. Now, uh, Houston has a huge Vietnamese population, correct? Absolutely. Yes. Yeah. Uh, we're just. I mean, I've talked to people and they said that, you know, it's uh, depending on the year, but we can be, uh, you know, we're just behind New York or sometimes we take over New York and we right. would never be able to overtake California. Understandable. But yeah, uh, New York, that's a surprise. <laughs> it is kind of a surprise. Um, now, the thing that Houston is most famous for to me is actually the 
arguably, and, and some would say not arguably, the best Vietnamese restaurants in America are in Houston, Texas. How do you feel about that? Do you agree with that sentiment? And if so, what is the single best Vietnamese restaurant in Houston, Texas? And uh, I, I, I'll have a follow-up from there, too. Um, usually for, you know, for this, uh, for this kind of like statement, I would say that, you know, the best Vietnamese food is in Vietnam. So, well, of course, but in the United yeah, States, okay. it's got to so be Houston, the, right? So in terms of, you know, the best Vietnamese American food, then, yeah, I would say uh, much like, you know, much like the stats of our Vietnamese uh, population in America, we just, you know, sometimes we, we, we uh, depending on the year, we might take over California. Or, you know, we might be, you know, second to California. So See, I anybody I know who knows Vietnamese food says that, he, that that Houston is superior to California and New York as far as Vietnamese food goes. It's more, it's a better food because of the coastal fishing and the, and the, from the Gulf. That is true. That is true. We uh, have closer access to, well, same deal with California. We, you know, we have uh, you know, closer access to the coast and, you know, uh, fishmongers and all that sort of stuff. Yeah, yeah. However, I think there is also the inclination to say that, you know, Houston is the better one, the superior one, simply because, you know, in terms of pricing, we are, uh, uh, we are softer on your wallet. Gotcha. Okay. As for New York, you know, forget about it. Okay. All right. All right. All right. Because I've I've been to New York and then I tried the Vietnamese food up there, but, you know, like, eh. it wasn't Uh, wasn't doing it for you. You were like, eh, I've had better. Nah. But I was like, I can understand why New Yorkers would say that this is the best Vietnamese food that they've ever eaten. But, um, well, New Yorkers think everything in New York is the best just because it's in New York. Well, you know but to I mean? be that's kind of like the New York deal, un- right? Understandable again, but uh, you know, I uh, I would say that you know sometimes some of their statements are true because uh, I've tried hot dogs at a few places, and well, New York, you know, you have the right to claim that you are the best. <laughs> okay, all right, the best hot dogs uh, uh, in America, according to my esteemed guests, are in New York. The yes. best Vietnamese food might be in California, but the best Vietnamese food at cost is probably in his hometown current hometown of houston texas there we go lovely summary 10 out of 10 for that. Uh, no notes. now what is the perfect which what's your favorite dish perfect dish uh from vietnamese cuisine you're like that is you know the legitimate real the, this is the best dish this is the best or my favorite, or whatever. What what's something that's that you know? That, a very that, dangerous question here because this is uh, you know depending on the answer, it will actually have uh, get you get your podcast more listeners, or <laughs> it could just bankrupt you completely. I don't okay, know. All right. Okay. All right. all right. Well, get ready to take it. But uh, I think I'm uh, I'm gonna go with uh, Boom Ryu. It's okay. a. B- yeah, it's spelled B-U-N, and there's a space, uh, R-I-E-U. So basically what that is is um, vermicelli with uh, crab paste and uh, tofu and tomatoes. And it's just delicious. 
Well, that, that sounds absolutely delicious. Mm-hmm. Reason why I bring this up, not only because are you in Houston, Texas, and you know there's a legendary uh, reputation for Vietnamese food there. You yourself are Vietnamese. It's also that you are an advocate on social media for Vietnamese representation in film and film criticism, um, and representing the, sort of a larger culture and kind of a in a already underrepresented people group. Uh, you know, Asian Asian cinema. There, you know, Vietnamese cinema, Vietnamese film criticism, film culture is even more so seemingly underrepresented. Uh, do you want to talk about that for a second? Oh yeah, sure. Uh, I mean, it uh, that the everything that you said, it actually was not the was not my let's just say for the lack of a better word, like my primary objective. Yeah. Uh, when I uh, embarked on this uh, writing and film criticism kind of like career, but um, eventually, eventually it became it became a thing, and uh, it became a thing when I realized that you know there's there's this pretty apparent. Uh, disregard and disrespect for um you know uh people of my community in particular in terms of you know our engagement with anything creative or anything artistic so i was just so i was just like you know every every night i would come back home and then i would just lying there and then i would just think about um i mean we have people in front of the camera but why aren't they talk about more like mm. why are they so you know what did they ever do <laughs> to deserve so much uh you know disregard and disrespect mm. and it was just uh it's uh honestly it's a question that i haven't i haven't been able to find the answer i don't think i will uh perhaps next life but uh on my way in order to formulate kind of like an answer for that i would just uh i would just try to promote as much as possible promote and comment not not only promote i'm not a pr person um just to interact basically interact Mm. through writing as much as possible about you know the people of my community their contributions to cinema past present and future and Basically, just to um, support the fact that you know uh, my people are here, my people are visible. The uh, cinema of my people is real, and um, here's why y'all should talk about this. Mm. Basically, so. Well, I appreciate all your hard work uh, online, and I appreciate, you know, it's obviously comes from a place of passion and pain in, and f- uh, from you, which is obvious, and and where else would it come from? So it makes perfect sense. I know this isn't, as you were saying, it's not like your goal is to be a film critic, full stop, period. It wasn't to sort of take up this battle, but somebody's got to do it, and who who better than you? Oh, my gosh. Plenty, plenty of people. There are plenty of <laughs> yeah, but but if they're not doing it, who better than you? Yeah, I, I mean, you know, I mean, you can say you can say that I'm being like uh, falsely modest here, but uh, I 
I reckon so. It's just it's just that you know, I truly do believe that there are actually people who are better than me and who are actually more knowledgeable than me to uh to take on what I said earlier about you know my primary objective. Sure. But the thing is that there's always this. There's this language and there's this intra-community language and cultural barrier that, you know, prevents understanding or, mm-hmm. you know, access. Yeah. As in, like, if you, are a, uh, if you are a person of Vietnamese descent in the diaspora, then you may not exactly uh, have an incentive. Uh, and I'm being, like... Uh, you know, on a collective broad umbrella sure, term here, sure. you don't really have the incentive in order to engage with um, anything of the Vietnamese homeland community, and vice right. versa. The Vietnamese homeland community will have will see no incentive in order to interact with the Vietnamese of the diaspora because right. you know because of distance, because of beliefs, because of so on and so forth. Anything under the anything under the sun, uh, just you know, pick one. Basically. Right. Right. And uh, yeah, it's just I wholly believe that sometimes we we in our own community we are actually making it more difficult for ourselves. Mm-hmm. But um, you know, who am I to tell them that they're wrong? Very true. Well, here's the thing. I think that you're important. I think that your voice is important. I think what you're doing is important, which is why I wanted to have you on the show. And I want all of my listeners, regardless of your ethnic background, to support Nguyen and support what he's doing. Uh, find his writing when he's he's been published everywhere from Fangoria to bylines for some hit movies you've seen. You know, those nice little bylines that critics get. He's got a few out there. Um, he's, you know, he's writing online. He's writing a lot of places. He's been doing it for years and years. Support him. When you see a project he's a part of, or a tweet that he's trying to get out there, or an art something he's written. Give this guy some retweets. Get behind him, support him because people like him are important. He's important, and I can't wait to talk to him about some things that absolutely do not matter, which are the hit movies of two thousand and two. I had to, I, we had to start with the stuff that matters when so that we could get to the stuff that doesn't mean shit, which is there are these movies. No, <laughs> At least no, this no. first one. At least this first one we're talking about doesn't mean nothing. <laughs> no, please, do not, do not disregard your topic, the topic that you're about to discuss with me here, Jason. It's just because 2002 to me is um, it's, a, it's a great year. Um, yeah, for it is me, actually for me, year. for me, okay. for me, okay. I, okay. I, I would say that for sure, because, you know, great, it's a greatness is subjective. And then people can yeah. say that 2002 is a great year. Are you on drugs? And I'm like, <laughs> no, 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 no. But, you know, for me, 2002 is a great year because uh, obviously, besides the fact that, you know, uh, a whole lot of a whole lot of films came out. It was also, I guess, one of the earliest years that I could remember where I became uh, uh, for the lack of a better word here, like became really sensitive to uh, mm. what I watch, mm. as in like uh, you know I noticed a little bit more about uh, a little bit more about frame, a little bit more about the dialogue, a little mm. bit more about the exchange. There's no way of saying this without sounding like I'm a little bit uh, 
arrogant or boastful, but yeah, yeah. 2002, I would say one of the earliest years where I think I broke out of the cocoon of a casual watcher, you know? Oh, yeah, yeah. We all have so, those years, yeah. though, where, especially for those of us that do film criticism, film review, podcast, or are just hardcore movie lovers like a lot of our audience, there mm-hmm. are a lot of a lot of us go from there's that moment we can point to maybe it's a year maybe it's a movie maybe it's a couple of movies maybe even a couple of years where we go that's where i transition from somehow just being someone you know like you said a casual viewer to like film conscious where i'm actually became really aware of the art form of film um i don't think that's arrogant at all i think that happens to all of us so i want i'm going to be interesting to see whether or not um you gained uh, a, a higher level of film enlightenment during any one of the films we're going to talk about, we're going to start with a film that brother, if you're going to tell me that this is the one that made you conscious of, <laughs> of art, the art of cinema, woo, we're going to have a conversation. I'm, of course I'm talking about, it is 2002. That's the year die another day, which currently has a 55% on rotten tomatoes. On November 22nd, my friends call me jinx. My friends call me James Bond. One woman will play a dangerous game. What are you? I'm a girl that just doesn't like to get tied down. With the one man who doesn't like to lose. So I left you in an explosive situation. Occupational hazard. Pierce Brosnan. Let's get down to business. Halle Berry. Who sent you? Your mama. Looks like we're going down together. Not yet! Die Another Day. Rated PG-13. Die Another Day was directed by Lee Tamahori. It was written by Neil Purvis and Robert Wade as the triumphant return of Pierce Brosnan. Last scene, and I, I think the world is not enough. Maybe Tomorrow Never Dies. This is mercifully the last of the Brosnan Bond films I ever have to cover. It is the triumphant return of John Cleese, Judy Dench from all that same shit. It is the triumphant return of Halle Berry, last seen in the X-Men series, I believe. It's the triumphant return of Rosamund Pike, last seen in Doom. It's the triumphant return of Michael Madsen, Last seen in a movie that made it to last movie standing and lost to the Lord of the Rings. I'm talking about Quentin Tarantino's Reservoir Dogs. And it is the triumphant return of my personal favorite, Colin Salmon, last seen in Resident Evil as one. Um, this film was released November 20th, 2002 in the UK and November 22nd, 2002. 11, 22, 22. In the United States, on a budget of $142 million, it made $431.9 million. I believe at that time it was the highest grossing Bond movie of all time and definitely the highest grossing Brosnan uh, Bond. James Bond must stop the only thing eviler than a North Korean colonel with a death ray, a rich white guy. And for some reason, a vacation home in uh, Iceland. Actually, that is actually made out of ice. Oh, yeah. (laughs) my god okay did you yeah did you have a synopsis for me um i don't know i guess you covered pretty much on all the fronts okay but uh, if i if i have i guess if i have to give a kind of like a synopsis for this i would it would also be my one sentence review for this film it's just uh uh james bond goes uh james bond goes over the top as he you know uh leaves a trail of destruction of weak cgi destruction across north korea cuba iceland and on a plane yeah <laughs> so there we go 
Okay, uh, are you a fan of Bond in general or Brosnan's Bond in particular? Uh, yes, I am a fan of James Bond in general. And yes, I do love Pierce Brosnan in the role because I guess uh, my, I would say, Pierce Brosnan is my sister's, my older sister's first cinematic crush. Oh, okay. Mm-hmm. And, uh, but... You know, Die Another Day was also really the first one that, you know, I, uh, uh, my discovery of Rosamund Pike. And I guess it's also most people's discovery of uh, Rosamund Pike because I, if I remember correctly, this is her first, uh, her first acting role right after graduation. And, uh, so, you know, Doom won't come a couple of years after, but, uh, hey, so. Here she is, and she, you know, when she appeared on screen, I was like, <laughs> "Hello, who are? Hello, who are you? Are you free this Thursday? I am free this Thursday. You better free this Thursday. Where can we meet on Thursday? So, yeah, things like that." Okay, so <laughs> for this show, I'm not a Bond fan in general. I do like the the more recent Daniel Craig films by and large. Okay, gotcha. overall, I would say I'm not a Bond fan. Doing the mm-hmm. show, we did the top grossing movies of the 90s. Now we're doing the top grossing movies of the 2000s, the first decade of the, the new millennium. And so now I've covered every single James Bond movie of the Brosnan era. And even in a movie where he's not, the, there's movies where he, I don't think he's very good. Or the, you know, whatever the one is with Michelle Yeoh, even at, at the time when I reviewed that a few years ago, I was like, Tomorrow this, Never this Dies. Just, yeah, Tomorrow Never Does. This should have just been Michelle Yeoh's movie, and she should have got a spinoff because She's so much better than him in that movie. Um, and that was before everything everywhere all at once came out. And then I was, you know, and I've, I've been a big Michelle Yeoh fan since like Madame, Lady Madame or whatever. Yes, Madame. Um, yes, Madame. That's one. Yeah. I, you know, her and Cynthia Rothrock, you know, I love them. So uh, it, it's, it's so weird because it's either he is a very silly Bond in a very serious Bond plot that but still with a lot of 90s goofballery or he is a very serious bond in a very goofy movie this is by far his most serious turn as bond he is deadly serious he is slightly older there's way less puns way less quips way less jokes and yet the movie is so bafflingly stupid that that it's like these two things don't go together they for some reason they could never get his character right to match the tone of the script of the movie he was in. I don't think it's his fault. I think he's a good bond. You know, he's a dashing, handsome, sexy ass man. I get it. But this movie straight off the bat. Nguyen. Right. Of all the movies where James Bond should use a code name. This is the one because he is tortured in North Korea for over a year because his name is compromised. He escapes North Korean torture camp, then escapes MI6 in London, and then immediately checks into a hotel in Hong Kong and uses his name again. What in the world? I was like, what? Maybe maybe being a lifetime assassin and spy who uses his real damn name everywhere he goes around the world was a bad idea. I mean, you can really tell 
that you know die another day was a it was an installment where everybody was very unserious you know as <laughs> as a today's lingo would you know apply yeah yeah and but you know it got to a point where uh you know like i don't mind actually like i don't mind if it was a little bit unserious if it was a little bit uh fun or over the top but for this case it it really went it went overboard yes yeah and like you said and like you said you 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 said it perfectly about you know how things don't really seem things as in specifically the material that pierce brosnan was given and pierce brosnan himself things don't seem to be on the on the same page so no Uh, but you know he tried to weather through it and i mean was there was there even an awareness that he was marching toward an ending for his bond i mean i, I guess know. he That's knew a- i guess he knew but <laughs> is the, but but you couldn't but you know be i guess being a pro you couldn't really see that because he enjoyed it Uh, you know, uh, you know, on screen that 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 persona that we know, that persona that you know, my older sister would like so much, uh, would find so much enjoyment in. You know, yeah. he 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 would still be there. You know, he would still have fun. He would still, you know, dole out like really, really cheesy and sometimes like chalkboards, like and you know, nails on a chalkboard, kind of oh, yeah. like lines yeah. or one-liners. But you know. Our, our our man like power through it smoothly and you know he made it you know he made it like digestible like really smooth liquor of choice so it was just <laughs> so see so yeah so coming yeah. back coming back to my point i was like was he aware that you know this is, was like okay i guess i'm gonna go out i guess this is it for me so i guess i'm just gonna have fun with it was there an awareness of that That is something that only he could know, but um, yeah. But overall, I I guess he, in you know in layman's terms, I guess he knew he was he was in a bad film, so <laughs> he was just like, oh, okay, and, let's just have fun with it for the last night. <laughs> and you know it's a bad film because this may have the worst opening sequence and opening theme of any James Bond movie ever made. Whatever song Madonna turned in for this movie is one of the worst sounding songs I have ever heard in my life. And in fact, the entire ice slash diamond slash electricity slash whatever, as he is being waterboarded in a bucket of ice, they have this whole dance sequence that's going on. And it is one of the most incredibly ill-conceived opening moments of a James Bond movie ever i couldn't i was i was like what in the world the song doesn't match again his performance as a he's being a slightly more serious version of bond than he had ever been in the goofiest movie yet with a weirdo electronic proto edm song with by madonna who then also has a horrific cameo as of all things a fencing coach And then on top of that, she says maybe one of the stupidest things I've ever heard, where she says that Rosamund Pike's Olympic opponent overdosed on steroids, <laughs> which either we are meant to believe she and Madonna cheated and they killed the girl and framed it as an overdose, or the writers are very stupid. 
But if the writers aren't stupid and they're, if the writers are aware that one cannot overdose on steroids, then the two characters of Madonna and Rosamund Pike are very stupid because they, they killed somebody at the Olympics and then, then had to convince the Olympic committee that it was a steroid overdose. You know, I can't overdose on steroids. I the more that you are describing this film, the more that I the more that it, I realize, and also the more that it validate my thought that you know this was a very thoughtless uh, film. This is a very oh, thoughtless production. But, completely. Um, but not not because I don't think that it stems from malice, though. It was a thoughtless product because everyone was having too much to drink and having <laughs> having having so much fun, basically. So it yeah, didn't stem from malice. But then you know, <laughs> I agree with you. I don't think this was malice on behalf of the Broccoli family and Neil Purvis and whoever, whoever. I think that you see this pattern in the James Bond series since the beginning, which is they keep having to top themselves and they go from semi-serious or like mostly serious with some kind of intentionally wink and nod kind of humor to then they get over the top and then they get to the point where it's cartoonish, but still fun and entertaining. And then it gets to the point where it is cartoonish and cringy and then they have to reset the whole thing, right? It, it, it's been the cycle since like the sixties. Mm -hmm. This is the... It happened in the 80s. This is the 90s slash early 2000s iteration of that. You have Golden Eye, which is a mostly serious 90s action movie. Like, for what serious in terms of what 90s action movies were, right? Right. With some winks and nods, but still like a reasonable plot. And then, you know, then we, we get to the point where a guy's entire scheme is to control newspapers, which, you know, whatever. And then we get to this one where it's all about mining conflict diamonds blood diamonds essentially shipping them around the world to get rich to fund <laughs> north korea but maybe it's not north korea maybe it's just one part of the north korean army that is run by a general and his colonel's son the colonel's son then fakes his own death by falling off of a waterfall only to return in whiteface as a white guy. <laughs> <laughs> yes, there's that too. With a with a British with a British accent. With a British taking, accent. Taking up right. fencing and again building his uh vacation home made out of ice in Iceland. Did you know yes. how many how many dreams were shattered when they realized that, oh, wow, okay, let's go to Iceland and see this ice castle. And it just <laughs> turns out that there's no such thing. If you want to see one, then, you know, wait until winter and maybe at your, uh, you know, your local city has the, um, you know, snow palace or something like that. Yeah, exactly. Just frolic around in it. <laughs> well, that's the other thing. Yeah, they end up, this, the, the North Korean conflict centers around diamonds in Iceland where they're, they're, they're mining diamonds, which actually they're not because that's a cover. But somehow they again think that this is smart. Well, these aren't conflict diamonds. We're mining them in Iceland. I didn't know that Iceland was known for its diamond mines, especially diamond mines atop a frozen uh, underneath a frozen lake, which is apparently where he's pretending to mine them from. He has an entire mining operation for a place where he isn't actually mining diamonds full of lasers that apparently do nothing. 
He's like, the diamonds aren't real, but these lasers are. Why do you need all these lasers if you're not doing anything there? Also, to your point, every kid learns in elementary school, uh, if you want ice, you go to Greenland. If you want green, you go to Iceland. Because even though it's called Iceland and there is ice there, Greenland is much more of an Arctic country. They, this, they make Iceland look like Antarctica in this movie. <laughs> Only because the name of the country is Iceland uh, and because diamonds in the early 2000s were referred to as ice. So where were the diamonds come? They must come from Iceland. What if it was an ice palace in Iceland? And then the, all of this somehow so he can build a satellite that builds a second sun. Now, when? Let's think through this. He's like, there'll never be night again. You'll be able to farm 24-7. <laughs> Photosynthesis requires a also a <laughs> lack of sunlight in order for the nutrients from the sun to be able to be processed by the plants. If it's sun 24-7, you'll kill every single crop. And you'll drive the planet insane because our circadian, our circadian rhythm requires there to be darkness at nighttime. If it's perpetually day, <laughs> you will destroy the planet. And how does this help North Korea? How does a second sun help North Korea destroy at, South Korea? How does that? <laughs> I guess. I guess at this point they should. They should. You know, if I, if they ever do a remaster or re-release of this, they should just change the title to you know question another day as opposed to die another day. <laughs> answers another day because we don't have any ask us another day what the answers are to the plot of our script because you will walk away with nothing but questions this yes. okay now, and here's, I, my, you know. here's my last bit of my rant okay and then i'll <laughs> turn it over to you I, I wanted to know do the do the do the writers understand radiation because they're beaming the sun onto an ice lake and the ice lake is only melting where this the sunbeam is hitting it it direct sunlight concentrated beams of uva uvb radiation 50 feet from where pierce brosnan is driving a car a thunderbird would completely melt his brain and completely melt the interior of the car this movie has hokey action boring performances an hour and 27 minutes in, I stopped the movie. And I was like, okay, this has got to be wrapping up. This has got to be, this has got to be coming to a close. I paused the movie. I looked at it. There was 47 more minutes. 47. <laughs> That's a short film. There was still another short film's worth of material to go. And it was horrible. It was horrible. <laughs> this movie went from a five out of 10, which is not good, to a 3 out of 10 based on the last 47 minutes alone. I'm done. Please continue, sir. <laughs> <laughs> you know, I guess I the only thing that I would have to say is just that, you know, when if we do change it to, you know, questions another day or answers another day, I would like to very much uh, well, most of the, I guess, most of the questions that I have for them, they would be rhetorical. But the only <laughs> one, the only yeah. one that I would request them to answer is that who in the world thought it was a bright idea to, you know, uh, let Bohr, uh, I mean, let 
Bond do his uh, fornication thing right next to a Buddha statue. Who? <laughs> Who? Who the heck? Who the heck? <laughs> That's a good point. Yeah. Right. Yeah. I mean. So we have we've got white face sacrilege. <laughs> <laughs> Well, this is not a culturally sensitive uh, film towards <laughs> the North Korean people, British people, or Buddhists. <laughs> no, it, it like you know, like like we discussed. This is a this is just a very <clears throat> this is just a very thoughtless kind of like a uh, kind of like a product. But yeah, p- was it a reflection of the times? I don't know. I think it was more like uh, somebody I hinted one of the writers, uh, you know, uh, went and half LASIK while I. <laughs> so they would just imagine that you know their uh, you know their eyeballs is like like in Iceland, and then you know the laser of the LASIK. They were like, what if it was hotter? What if it was like it has the power of the sun? What if it could benefit North Korea? I don't know, but oh, here's a script. No, so I think you was- know you're being silly, but I think you're being exactly right though. That's what it feels like, right? Is that they're like, oh, what if this, and then what if this? Like they're just pulling ideas. And putting it into a script, and you're right, it's thoughtless. There's no thought of how these like, ideas should connect or how they would ever make sense. You're 100 percent right. correct. But you know, I guess I should clarify as well. I I love films because, uh, you know, most of them are basically uh, providing like vi- like visually and orally and whatever. They just cinematically providing an answer to a what if that I have. Uh, what yeah. if that yeah. the you know everyone in the world has, but this one it was just like, what if with a big asterisk? What if we're high and this happens? So <laughs> right that that's not that's not the that's not the kind of what if that I I I I want to see conveyed on film. But no. hey, they made it, they made it, and they slap a double uh, seven. Ex- insignia on it yep they did and you know it, it it is a film that goes over the top jumps all the sharks and refuses to be over it would just like let's do it again <laughs> so it jumps over so it jumps over the top it jumps over all the sharks and then it does it again yep. until it ends which is annoying <laughs> i think that might be one of the best critiques i've ever heard of anything i love the phrase that you just use and then it refuses to end because you're 100 percent right this movie refuses to be over it, it, it the movie is done it has spent its story it has spent its characters and it's like nah another hour you're going what there's nothing there's nothing left here you've jumped all the sharks like you said, there's nothing left. It's like, nah, nah, we're going another hour. And you're like, what? Mm-hmm. And they're like, nah, we're not ending. It refuses to end. That's 100% correct. Right. But, you it's- know, like, to be, you know, on a more serious note, it really makes uh, it really makes James Bond half the man he used to be. So, there we go. <laughs> okay. If you had to give this a score out of 10, what would you give it? Three. <laughs> okay. <laughs> no disagreement there. Of the five films we watched this week, where does this one rank for you? 
Six. Six. <laughs> <laughs> so I'm guessing this is your worst of the week, then, right? This is this is this is worse than the worst. Right. Yeah. And uh, it's not. Is... And it's not that I hate fun, but um, to be clear, it's not that I hate fun. It's just that I hate badly done fun. Yes. I'm with I you. mean, kite surfing, had that scene done with a little bit more polish, it would have been like silly cool. And yes. silly cool can be really cool. But at one point, I guess all I could see was like a blur and yes. Bond being very marionette like. But, you know, that's just me, I guess. No, I it's hate, not just I you. Hate, yeah, I hate fun. What's about that? <laughs> <laughs> No, fun done badly is it, it's repulsive. You know, it, you're, it's it, you, watching somebody butcher fun because that's you, you go into a movie like this, you're not expecting Academy Award level anything. No. You go into a movie like this for fun action sequences and fun characters and fun stunt coordination, all that sort of stuff. So you accept the movie for what it is on the box. If the movie then executes the only thing it has going for it, this poorly then it it's just ends up being kind of miserable because you're like oh i just wanted to i just wanted this to be fun and instead it's overly long and not executed well it doesn't look good the action sequences are not impressive so i'm right there with you it's my worst of the week number five let's move on to what i think is a much stronger movie and potentially controversial in this episode we'll find out uh, i'm talking about m night Shyamalan's signs which currently has 75 percent on rotten tomatoes For years, the signs have been appearing. This summer, their meaning will be revealed. Mel Gibson, M. Night Shyamalan's Signs. There's a monster outside my room. Can I have a glass of water? Signs was written and directed by Mr. M. Knight. It's the triumphant return, if that's what you want to call it, of Mel Gibson, last seen in What Women Want. It's the triumphant return of Joaquin Phoenix, last seen in Gladiator. This film was released August 2nd, 2002. On a budget of $72 million, it made $408.2 million. A hard-hearted priest tries to protect his family from a plague of intergalactic locusts. What if you look outside your window and your close encounter of the of you know extraterrestrial uh is not seeing a ufo on the sky but then actually seeing a freaking thing on the rooftop <laughs> so there we go that's my synopsis for it uh i sometimes i get flack for being quote unquote too political on this show um based on the apple podcast reviews if you disagree with that leave me a five star get that get, let's get those numbers back up um so I won't go political with it, but I will just say this. When when Culkin, the kid and the daughter, go into the bookstore and the guy's watching on TV and he's like, I don't think anything of this, any of this is real. I think this is just to sell uh, soda. I've seen 12 soda commercials. This is all a bunch of hooey. I, I'm like, having lived through what we've lived through for the last uh, decade, let's say, I'm like, that's 100% the, would be the response even if there were giant UFOs 
visible from the sky over 400 worldwide cities and crop circles in your neighborhood and aliens walking down the street. Somebody would be watching the television going, I don't believe that's real, goddammit. A hundred percent. A hundred percent. I have not seen this movie since 2002, 2003, maybe. Oh, wow. Um. Here's what I would say. For me, this movie feels the way a good novel reads. Ah, good and analogy. The, yeah, the way that what I notice now as an adult is I think it's so interesting that Graham, Mel Gibson's character, who is the lapsed priest who suffered a tragedy and who has lost his faith, is actually the the first one and the only one who repeatedly throughout the film until its climax experiences direct proof. He sees the alien in the cornfield when none of the rest of the family's around. He exper- he sees the alien in the pantry. He cuts the fingers off. He has all of these very personal encounters that that are not signs that are not open for interpretation. They're not the rest of the family is seeing this stuff on TV and maybe catching glimpses out of the corner of their eye, you know, especially Joaquin Phoenix when they're chasing through the cornfield. But Gibson's character intentionally gets closer and closer experiences with these, these aliens. And I liken it to the ancient Hebrew story of the Exodus, where mm. the Old Testament refers to Pharaoh and it says that with Pharaoh when the plagues would happen, Pharaoh would harden his heart. Meaning, you know, Pharaoh would see evidence of the power of Yahweh and his response to that would be to harden his heart and not let the the Israelites go. And I think the religious allegory here, the Judeo-Christian particular allegory that's going on here to some extent of, first of all, the movie's called Signs. They talk about miracles. They talk about signs and wonders. They talk about, obviously, faith. Faith is central to this. You could explain it beyond Judeo-Christian, but that's sort of the immediate context the film puts it in. And I also think the, the, what we've seen from Nope, where Peel, Jordan Peele takes the idea of UFOs and instead of referring to it as a miracle, he refers to it as a bad miracle, which I think it was a, almost an offshoot of the ideas and signs. And in fact, the, his alien creature, which is the UFO itself, actually is repre- actually looks in some of its forms, like a quote unquote, biblically accurate angel of what they look like. Um, and the biblical quotes he pulls from that for the beginning of the movie. Mm. I, 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 I just, I see a connection here where something in the universe is continuously trying to get Graham's attention. And even through tragedy is trying to get his, uh, uh, attention for the purpose of, uh, whether, whether well, there's another movie in here where we can dive into some of this stuff too, where you're talking about predeterminism or predestination, these sorts of things. <clears throat> but some force larger than these aliens is at work in Graham's life to draw his attention for him to see beyond his pain and beyond himself. And even the pain has a purpose. Uh, and you might find that hokey and you might find the, the delivery of it, okay, especially at the end. But I think Mel Gibson, despite who he is as an actual human being, the actor here in 2002, somehow pulls all of those ideas the Shyamalan has, all of those threads together, and 
delivers a very genuine performance that makes this entire movie tick. And of all of Shyamalan's work, uh, and I am a fan of his, I think this is probably his most human sounding dialogue. Um, <laughs> it doesn't have his typically stilted, strange way of speaking. It, these, these feel like real people in a very surreal situation. And damn, if this one didn't just get me in my feelings, I know I just, I know I'm uh, all over the place there, but this, this really moved me in a way I wasn't expecting uh, in a way that it didn't 20 years ago. Right. What are your thoughts? Um, well, first of all, I'd like to say thank you for, you know, sharing all of that. It was, it was really compelling. And, um, to, I guess, to continue off of your point, if I may, it's that, um, <clears throat> I would say this is M. Night Shyamalan's best movie. You I know, think so too. A, a lot of people, a lot of people, they say that the sixth sense and, you know, I understand that they're valid, but, uh. To me, science is just like him operating at the masterful level mm -hmm. of mm -hmm. everything about him as a uh, as a visual storyteller. And <clears throat> and you know when you dive into like faith and beliefs and all that, uh, I suddenly I have like two, two two notes in my head that I'm just gonna convey. The first one is that you know. The more that I watch signs, the more that I realize um, or interpret more like the more that I the more I interpret the film, the, the horror of the film mm -hmm. is not so much about forces that you can understand are knocking on your front door, but um, the horror that, you know, the greatest horror of all is that when you live your life without any direction or without any purpose mm. and and it's pretty cool too that i guess we have like four for the lack of a better word in this film we have we can see like four distinct systems of belief mm. in uh in here with uh you know graham uh, characters being like an active believer Meryl, uh, played by uh, Joaquin Phoenix, a great performance, by the way. Yes. And uh, Meryl is more like the passive, a believer. Mm. Uh, Jerry Jones, also a splendid performance. It's like the someone who's ambivalent, indifferent. Yeah. And of course, we're gonna we have the kids, uh, Morgan and Bo. Uh, you know, Morgan played by Rory Culkin and Bo. Yeah by Abigail Breslin. Also splendid performances. Like everyone in here, right. everyone in here is just sublime. Um, Morgan and Bo are more like learners, you know, believers who are learning. And <laughs> I guess, I guess they're, especially for Bo, I guess she's at, her character is at too young of an age to realize this, but all the events Every single adult, whatever it is that they think about, whatever it is that you know they would be talking about, it it influences her in some way. So it really looks like childlike behavior, but it's actually like learning. So mm. I just you know I just thought that you know it, it it's it's something that's pretty interesting. But anyway, onto my onto the second point about signs <laughs> that I have is just that 
isn't it just a perfect companion piece to knock at the cabin which released earlier in the year yep Yep. (laughs) because it's basically it's basically pretty much the same thing you you see a sign you saw the sign you know you see the sign and then (laughs) you just and then you just decide what the heck am i going to do with this am i am i going to really believe it am i really going to believe the grotesque the grotesqueries on display or am i going to take the grotesqueries on display as kind of like a conviction or mm. devotion actual devotion mm. will you be will you be able to see like will you be able to see beauty as is uh in its in its you know in its whole and in its wholeness of the beauty which is also which also means that you have to interpret horror as something that is beautiful as well well, okay, I you think you're spot on with that last portion. And there's a mm-hmm. distinction between a lot of Western, let's say, faith, tradition, religion, whatever you want to say, spirituality, right? and especially Americanized Western spirituality, which <laughs> essentially says that faith is the antidote to suffering. Mm-hmm. Whereas the ancient context, and in particular the ancient Near Eastern context of both, again, for, for this sake, because of this film, because of its context, a Judeo-Christian, Jewish-Christian background, that's not the philosophy. The philosophy is not that faith is an escape or answer to suffering. It is that suffering is a part of faith. And I think you have Graham, who you pointed out as an active believer. The reason why Graham is so angry at God, to the point that he says he hates God at some point when he's in a fury in the basement, the reason why he is so hard-hearted, why he has left his calling while he has completely left the faith while he refuses to allow his children to play and pray rather at the dinner table is because active believers often suffer the most Mm. because you have these resolute convictions but you do not have answers and there's a difference between conviction and certainty and in the west we try to teach people that faith equals certainty And faith does not equal certainty. Faith equals trust and allegiance in the midst of uncertainty. And the intellectual suffering and the at times physical suffering that it takes, regardless of your religious practice or your religious belief, suffering is integral to that. And in fact, most, especially Eastern religion, including early Christianity and Judaism, because they're from the Near East, um, that's the proposal. The proposal is that not only is suffering a part of existence, it is a requirement of faith. Because the more that you believe in some form of higher power, greater good, ultimate truth, ultimate enlightenment, whatever, personal God, whatever, personal gods, plural, the, the, in the midst of the world that you live in, that the God or the gods, the universe or whatever, energy, whatever, has an intention for the world, and the world is living consistently beneath that intention. Right. So you are now aware of what the utopia ought to be, but you have to live in the world not as it ought to be, but as it is. And your life is supposed to be a reflection of what the world could be. Justice, peace, shalom, love, mercy, kindness, selflessness, all of these things which are uh, elevated in a lot of you know, world religions. Um, 
and the in in the and the in between of that, the now and the not yet of that, creates even more suffering. You know, because w- when you have an awakening, you become now awake not to your point, not just to the goodness and the grandeur and the beauty. You become awake to the horror. Mm-hmm. You become awake to the suffering of other people. You become awake to just how potentially at times horrific and arbitrary and evil the world could be. You, you become a more aware of injustice and, and the hardness of other people's hearts towards injustice. That's a form of suffering in and of itself. When you right. become moved towards justice and other people around you don't care. <laughs> right? <laughs> right. You're like, how could you not care? Look at the world. Look at the way this is. There's an, something is not right here. And everybody's just like, oh, calm down, calm down, calm down. That's suffering. And so I think he is so bitter against God because he actually believes so deeply. What's the matter with everyone? Eat. Maybe we should say a prayer. No. Why not? We're not saying a prayer. Bo has a bad feeling. I had a dream. We aren't saying a prayer. Eat. I hate you. That's fine. Let mom die. Morgan. I am not wasting one more minute of my life on prayer. Not one more minute. Understood? Now, we are going to enjoy this meal. No one can stop us from enjoying this meal, so enjoy it! Stop crying! Don't yell at her! And how could I believe so deeply and be so betrayed so cruelly? And obviously the movie plays out in a way where what seems like it could have been the ultimate betrayal by God may have actually been the ultimate mercy, ultimate kindness, which is horrific for us to grasp as human beings. But if those events didn't happen, what would he have lost? What would have been lost? This is the kind of conversation that the film would like to have, that uh, Shyamalan would like us to have for science, because conceptually... This is very this uh, this is a very simple film on that front, <laughs> you know. Yeah. However, it it really means something more than that. Like it doesn't just exist in order to scare the bejesus out of you. However, freaking birthday scene! I <laughs> never again. Gosh, I still watch that with my eyes closed. Like, come on. <laughs> and also, uh. I guess I guess I'm gonna have to you know uh, double check with you on this, but is that was the birthday video also the first time that you know uh, Shyamalan kind of like experimented with the uh, found footage style before he so. went yeah. before he went you know and did a whole movie around that with the visit, which is yeah, I think a so. cool film by the way. <laughs> anyway, so yeah, like science doesn't just doesn't just aim to be scary even though it is a scary film i still yes. have i still have nightmares about it i i, I still look at corn stalks or sugarcane <laughs> stalks that's kind of like oh okay the upper part that looks like what it is that looks like vegetable but then i just know that the bottom half of it is actually a Victoria's Secret model equivalent of an alien leg. There we go. <laughs> I just know. I just know. I, I I never looked at them the same way. But 
you see the the film is i guess it's almost like a character test by fear or try trial by fear more like because it really wants us to like dive in into the horror almost like head first because head first a uh, quote unquote because you know it's right at our front door but it really wants to reaffirm to us that you know the moment that we did that the moment that we choose to confront that once we open that particular door nirvana is on the other side mm. everything's good and well everything everything that you wish that you can find everything that you've complained that you couldn't find right now is all beyond the door mm. would you like to open it though that's the thing mm. one of the things i think is interesting uh from like a ancient hebrew perspective part of the and to this day part of jewish tradition and this is not true of like uh, american like evangelicalism but um <laughs> part of what is part of their tradition is complaining against god and confronting god and that's actually a form of prayer to be able to take it's not just you know sort of begging god or asking god for things that you need but actually being able to stand before god and hold god to account Right, and you see examples of that in the Old Testament, where you know Moses and others. You know that's part of the term is you know intercession is basically the English translation of it. Part of to intercede is to stand in between God and a people, and oftentimes convince God not to do what God wants to do to those people <laughs> uh, to bargain with God. But also, you know, like the story of Job, like I have suffered these losses and I would that God would answer me like a man. If God were an earthly judge, I would be able to stand before God and plead my case. And this is the story. God shows up and goes, okay, you want to talk to me like a man? Here I am. Let's hash it out. And that's part of, again, so that's part of faith. And so I think what's interesting here is, is Graham's character doesn't have a moment, like a Job, he doesn't repent, to use that term, of his anger. He confesses his anger. Right. And it's in the confession of his anger that God delivers him, if you, that's the way you want to interpret, way you want to look at it. Mm -hmm. And then he realizes that in the midst of his anger, that the little girl, since she was a child, has this weird thing with water. And that was to serve a purpose. And the boy has asthma. And that was to serve a purpose. And the boy coming close to death was to close his lungs so the poison didn't get in because God's actually trying to save his kids or whatever, mm -hmm. you know. But I think that's really what sort of what the movie wants us to at least think about is, is God trying to save this man's family, to save him. Right. But uh, to your point, again, it's, it is, it's not that nirvana, that enlightenment, that ability to see, because that's what she says to him, you see, swing away, Merle. Um, his ability to see the divine design around him is incumbent upon him, not running away from his anger at God, but fully embracing it, fully confessing it. You know, him just trying to be stoic and go, well, that's not really a part of my life anymore. That's not good enough. Him being angry at that table and letting the pain out has to happen where he yells at the kids and he ends up sobbing for that mm -hmm. family to reunite, to be reconciled. He has, you know, um, um, you know, uh, him telling God to God's face, essentially, I hate you. 
has to happen. Right. And the way that the story ends is when we flash forward to the next winner, presumably, or that winner, he's back as a man of faith. And without dialogue, we just simply see it, that he is back as a man of faith. And the photos are back on the wall. The family has been restored. And he's back. His calling has been restored. His faith has been restored. And it's not from a, oh, I shouldn't have been angry. I shouldn't have felt that way. It's actually from the full embrace, like you said, the opening of the door to all, you know, nirvana. You, you, the, only way, the only way out is through. He has to go mm -hmm. through the suffering. He can't pretend that it isn't there, pretend it doesn't exist. Hide, hide it for more pious feelings or more pious uh, 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 attitudes or whatever. He has to fully embrace his, um, his pain, his suffering. So, right. yeah. And the enlightenment is on the other side. Yeah. So, you know, basically people say that, you know, they're, they try to make their way out of the woods. But then I guess for science, it was just like you try to make your way out of the cornfield. <laughs> right. And the only way out is through. You have to go through. Mm -hmm. Yeah, you have to go through the corn. Yeah, you have to go through. Um, you know, you 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 have to recognize your attachment. Mm -hmm. So that you can, things. yeah. So then you can avoid being a husk of yourself. Yes. Yeah. Honestly. Yes. Yeah. Uh, a whole um, lot of corn puns today. So. <laughs> <laughs> But they're not wrong either, which is funny. They're not wrong. They all apply. Um, are we missing? Are we missing anything with science? Because I'm right there with you. Um, I am a fan of his work, um, and I've grown in appreciation of him over time. Mm -hmm. Even his movies, that I don't think are entirely successful. Um, I think are just. So, I think he's one of the most interesting filmmakers but i think he asks really interesting questions and i think he's interested in interesting questions mm -hmm. and even if the execution isn't always 100 percent there i think there's something at least emotionally and intellectually to chew on in his movies that you don't get from a lot of thrillers and things like that and i also i just think he's making types of movies they just don't make anymore so yeah i mean you know I, I'm I'm exactly with you on that level because you know Shyamalan you know you can like his films you can hate his films I I sure know that I like some of his films and then I yeah. sure hate a few of them but yeah. you know at the end of the day you know he's still doing some more interesting things than whomever you say is your all-time favorite filmmaker is I'm sorry but you know that's that's just a fact. I agree, yeah. <laughs> because, you know, he, he he's always, something I notice about him is that he's always doing a film for somebody. So mm. I guess from a funda, from, you know, just from a very foundational, from a very fundamental point is that because he knows that he's doing a film for somebody, and somebody would always be like this person first and the audience second not be just just you know subjective ordering subjective ranking not like he's dismissing the audience or anything mm -hmm. i just want to be clear on that but because he knows that he's doing a film for somebody that is why at the very base at the very base of everything that he does it will always be interesting maybe the whole thing won't be 
Mm. But then there's always that little layer that you can rely on, and you know that oh okay, that's cool, and you know that's all uh, that's all of his films are like you know that's cool. Okay, if you had to give this one a score out of ten, what would you give it? Ooh, okay. Let me see. I'm just trying to be consistent with myself here. This is a nine. Okay, for me, it's an eight point seven five. We're not that far off at a ten. Okay, yeah. cool. That's yeah, a yeah. sign. Okay. Yeah. <laughs> so that was well, now. Here's here's where it gets real spicy. Where does it rank for you out of these five films? Second. Second. Wow. <laughs> here's where my controversy comes in. This is my number one. Oh, this I'm is at, your number one. Okay, I'm that's adding it to cool. the short list. Yeah, this is my number one. It's gonna. Okay. Yeah, I think this is the best movie I watched this week, and I wouldn't have thought that going into the week. Well, let's keep it moving. This I'm guessing this next one's going to be your number one. I'm talking about Ice Age, which currently has a seventy-seven percent on Rotten Tomatoes. They may not trust mankind, <laughs> but on March fifteenth, prepare for the Ice Age. They have to save it. Oh, that's perfect. Ray Romano. You're an embarrassment to nature. Do you know that? John Leguizamo. Captain Iceberg ahead. Dennis Leary. Ah! And Scrag. We are the weirdest herd I've ever seen. Ice Age. I'm pooped. Three, two, one. Rated PG. March 15th only in theaters. Ice Age was directed by Chris Wedge. It was written by Michael Berg, Michael J. Wilson, and Peter Ackerman. It's triumph return of John Leguizamo. Last heard and seen, I think, Super Mario Brothers, the movie. I think this is the last time he was on the show. Mm. It was released March 15th, 2002, in a budget of $59 million. This film made $383.2 million. A gang of prehistoric misfits must reunite a human child with his tribe at the start of a new glacial period. Maybe a little spoilery, but, uh, you know, I'm just going to go ahead and anyway. So, uh, my synopsis for Ice Age. So you really think that a woolly mammoth, a saber-toothed tiger, a sloth, and a baby will be like the most important people in this franchise? No. It's going to be the scrap. It's going to be the squirrel <laughs> and the rat that tries to get the acorn that, you know, that's always out of reach. My dad was a cinephile. Long-time listeners know that, so I won't beat him, beat him down with that, <laughs> those stories again. Uh, he's no longer with us. He died. And... Um, he he liked every type of movie, all movies. It doesn't mean that he liked every movie. It just meant mm-hmm. that he liked movies so broadly he would watch anything. Didn't matter. Didn't matter what it was. Didn't matter where it came from. He would give it a shot. Uh-huh. He had a special... Uh, this, this was so interesting. As I'm watching this movie, because I watch these back-to-back, Signs and Ice Age. Oh, and okay. I'm watching Mel Gibson, who's an actor who is linked to my dad in my brain. Mm. And my dad didn't sound like Mel Gibson, nor did he look like Mel Gibson. But there's some, there was something in the timbre of his voice that when Mel, it's officially like 2000s Mel, when he was sort of that deeper, bassier, baritone sound, mm-hmm. there's a similar sound. And in I particular, see. the way that he comforted his son in signs reminded me of how my dad would comfort me when I was a kid. Then I flip over to Ice Age, and my dad would watch this movie on a loop. 
<laughs> and, in the, and I'm dead serious. He went out and bought the freaking DVD because he laughed at Scrat harder. And my dad had a big laugh, but he laughed at Scrat. He thought Scrat was the funniest thing he'd ever seen. He loved, and I think I'd have to go check uh, his personal collection of what's left of it. I think that he had every Ice Age movie up until he died. And he only, he liked them all, and they were like, yeah, it's fine. But he loved Scrat. So to go from Gibson to Scrat was this very weird emotional journey where I was wondering if the universe or God was trying to unharden my heart or something. Because when <laughs> Ice Age fired up, which I have not seen since it first came out, and I watched it with my dad because I remember him laughing his ass off, and I walked in like, what are you laughing at? And he loved this. I was I was dumbfounded. I was like, this, Dad, of everything, this is what you find the funniest? And it was. It, 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 and, and so it was like, it was emotional for me just to watch this movie. Even though it's Ice Age and the animation hasn't aged well and it's not top-tier animation like as far as storytelling, whatever. Mm-hmm. Just because it's so synonymous in my mind with him. And... Of all the animation we've revisited in the show from the 80s, 90s, 2000s, this is like seemingly kind of the most outdated as far as, you know, it just doesn't look that great. But I'll be honest with you, I didn't really mind the movie. And I think it's a perfectly fine film targeted towards kids. And my kids' entertainment criteria is basically one, is it obnoxious? I don't think this one is. Does right. it offer something for adults? This one doesn't really, but, but it kind of tries to with, um, Manny's backstory, which we eventually get to. Does it offer a good formational message? Does it have something good to say that can help shape kids? And this one I think kind of does. It's not preachy, but it's kind of like, you know, found family and people who look different and are different and should be enemies should actually come together and all this sort of thing. And and ultimately, is it short? (laughs) And this movie is barely, it's basically just over an hour right and so because of that i think it's perfectly fine it's not top tier anything but it's a perfectly fine film and uh, what do you think yeah i i would say so too because do i really go out of my way to seek this film i don't but yeah whenever you know whenever it's it's on you know, it's on TV or, you know, somebody in the house or somebody's in anybody's house, turn it on. Then, you know, I would just, you know, I instantly recognize it. And then I would just, you know, maybe sit and watch it for a little bit. It's, it's comforting in a way that not the kind of comfort thing that I would actively seek out. If you know what I mean, it's, 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 it's really, it's really exists on this weird threshold <laughs> for no, me. you're right yeah <laughs> but uh but you know uh thank you for sharing that story about you know your dad being like ice age number one fan i mean blue skies <laughs> blue sky studios you know before that they you know they went out they they should have they should have made a shirt or something like that yeah for him. <laughs> oh, <yeah. laughs> but um yeah the film but I would, uh, but still, I would, you know, I would say this, and I don't care the flack that I'll get, but 
at this point, Blue Sky Studios um, was still doing more than Illumination. There we go. Yeah. Oh, yeah. There. I said it. So. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. They were definitely doing better work for sure. Um, mm -hmm. Yeah. I'm right there with you. This movie does sit on that weird threshold of it's not you don't think of it it's it's not in the canon like with the pixar films and some certain disney animated films it doesn't even rise the level of certain dreamworks animation films mm -hmm. but then when you watch it or if you fall into it either because you're doing a podcast retrospective and you have to watch it or <laughs> it's on it's on fx every weekend and you're watching you're like oh this is this is charming this is pleasant it's it, it's not it doesn't grate on you as an adult. It's not an obnoxious. It's not annoying. It's not overly loud. It's just a very sort of pleasant in sort of passively comforting. Okay, movie. Like and mm -hmm. I don't mean okay oh, in a bad way. It's you know, a positive okay. Mm -hmm. And now that yeah. you mention it, if I remember, and you know, if if memory serves, I would say that Ice Age, at least for this one. You know, for and only for this one, I guess it's actually very well paced. It is actually, yes. Yeah. <laughs> that's that's why that's why you you know you have that you know you have the incentive to you just to sit there and maybe watch it just for a little bit, and then maybe you know you you put it in the back of your head or something like that. But then you know you would you would just like still vaguely remember certain silhouettes and all that sort of happenings but it's just it's it's <clears throat> yeah it's just it, it flows very well it's very well paced it's not it's not impressive it's not going to rock your world on any front but then it's just you know you just calmly sit and watch whether the squirrel will <laughs> get <Yeah. laughs> get the acorn yeah, yeah. <laughs> it's good old scrat man and the mm -hmm. thing is like the scrat stuff especially the beginning is funny you know it's a funny it's animated in a very funny sort of way he's a very sort of cute character and mm -hmm. especially I, I don't know i don't know if the other ones are going to pop up in the top grossing films for the rest of the decade I, and i don't i haven't seen the other ones that i remember right um i'm sure i've seen the scrap portions because i'm sure my dad was watching it but um what's so innocent about this one is it's very clear they knew they had kind of something with scrap but it it wasn't Scrat does not feel as if he was artificially created to sell toys or a theme park mm. attraction there or a movie or whatever. It just seems like they came up with like a funny cold open for their movie of like, oh, what if we had this weird little prehistoric squirrel thing trying to get a nut and that we could book in the movie with like this little like a little short almost, you know? Mm -hmm. And I don't know if maybe they came up with him as like a, a demo reel for what the movie would be, and then they thought, oh, he's kind of funny, we'll put him in the movie. I don't know the history of it. But it felt kind of organic. It didn't feel contrived or forced. Like, oh, we know this thing is cute, and it was, you know, a, a made in a, a mar by a marketing firm or something. Mm -hmm. um, and so, because of that, yeah, the whole movie just sort of feels like they want to tell this simple story. They animated it. It's you're right. It's paced very well. We're trying to get from here to there. There's a couple of twists and turns along the way. Voice acting is pretty strong. And then oh, the yeah. ends. I think. <laughs> I think this. I think this film was also my introduction to uh, Dennis uh, Leary. Oh, and, yeah, yeah. And I was like, 
man, I would kill to have that voice. <laughs> yeah. Oh, yeah. It's a great voice. Yeah. Especially in this movie. Yeah. Yeah. Um, here's the other thing. Like, Sid the Sloth has the potential on paper, especially with the lisp and what Legozama's doing and some of Legozama's work, like uh, the pest. I think that was him from the 90s. Mm-hmm. You could definitely see, like, where that character could be really annoying. Right. And at least for me, I didn't really find him annoying. I found him to be just endearing enough. Yeah. Uh, I think I think it was literally, like, perfectly pitched because it could have, like you said, it could easily have been, you know, one of those characters that you were just like, okay, uh, you know, we get your shtick, but can you move yeah. on, please? But... Uh, I guess Leguizamo, he did it in a way that he did it like the animation somehow fits him rather it than it's, yeah. it's, so it's yeah. just it's just like properly properly aloof and again like you know to pull to pull a word that we uh, you know we we mentioned a lot like early on in the podcast like thoughtless thoughtless. Cute, but thoughtless. Yeah. So that at the end of the day, ultimately, like Sid is a really adorkable you know, <laughs> character. <laughs> That's a, yeah, he's adorkable. That's a great way to put it. Yeah. 100%. Yeah. So I don't think we, I don't have much more to say about this one other than, you know, it's pretty, it's, it's pretty cute. It's a, it's a cute kids film mm-hmm. that I think is, it's, you know. You really don't have anything to say about the Dodo? Because whenever somebody mentioned the Ice Age, that's the first sequence that I could remember. Like, prepare for the Ice Age. <laughs> <laughs> you know what? I, here's the thing: is like I saw it, I got it, I got it. Like, okay, these are dumb, whatever. The melons and they it kind of extinct themselves, and that's the joke. And I get it. <laughs> but I it I wasn't bad. It was funny. It was cute. But it's, it it didn't rise to me. It didn't rise above or below the rest of the movie. It was just in line with. It's a funny little sequence they came up with, and so that obviously is maybe your favorite part of the movie, or the, or the standout part for you. Absolutely, because besides the dodo, another sequence that another image that you know I think burned into my brain is when Sid was uh, holding the watermelon and then just smashing it in slow motion. Oh yes, yes. <laughs> yeah. I remember. Yeah. I remember laughing so hard when I first uh, saw that, and my sister was actually asking, "Like, are you okay? Because your face all red." <laughs> 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 and I could, and you know, it was so. And I wasn't. I, I'm not kidding about the fact that you know uh, it burned into my brain thing because I could still vividly remember where I was when I saw that. And I think I was seven or eight or something like that. I was sitting in my living room and no, I was lying down on the floor in my living room watching this. And I could still remember that the Ice Age, that I watched Ice Age on a pirated DVD. It's interesting. Yes, there you go. <laughs> hey, uh, you know, and, you know, story time, mini story time. You know, the thing about Vietnam is that uh, we're really big on... Um, piracy so <laughs> most most of my yeah. film education in vietnam actually was from pirated dvds i really? still, yes the first uh, the first dvd that i had uh and you know and watched on was the, the ring and 
it was pirated, of course. The subtitles were wrong and horrible, which is detrimental for me as I was learning English at the time. I watched Ice Age, and it also had bad English subtitles. And, you know, I just, I just decided to turn it off and then just watch how whether the watching the images alone could communicate the point to me. And I just thought that this works. So yeah, I guess that would also be another bonus for Ice Age. I'm just gonna just another bone to throw for it. It's just yeah. If for especially for someone like me whose English is a second language, and you know if the dialogue or if the uh, you know the English vocabulary was kind of hard to keep up with, yeah, you can still enjoy this on the uh, on the basis of the visuals alone. So. So, okay, so that is actually a sign of, like, very good animation, which is if you don't understand the primary language, could you understand the story and the characters and who's who and what's what simply by visuals? And you're saying you could. Ice Age, Mm -hmm. they executed it well enough that, oh, okay, you know, your English is like you're still learning. It's a little spotty. But you could completely follow the movie, understand everything that's going on just based on visuals and pieces of language you understood at that time when you were young. That's incredible. Yeah. Yeah. So, so good. Uh, right. So, right there is just like, I think goes to our point, which is just like, it's just a really good, solid, like simple movie. And that mm-hmm. sometimes that's okay. It doesn't, movies don't need to be more than that all the time. You know what I mean? Absolutely. So, that raises the question then, since this is one of the maybe a formational movie for you because you were, you know, younger at the time. Um, it's so vivid for you. Uh, you have such a concrete memory of it. Right. What's your score? Um, seven. Man, <laughs> again, we're right there. 7.25. Oh, okay. 7.25. <laughs> we're right there. Okay. Um, so where does it rank for you for the week? Um, fourth. Me too. Hi. <laughs> <laughs> Wow. Okay. Well, let's move along. Now, this is, uh, I think of all the movies, I had never seen our next film. I had never watched it. I had never seen it. Oh, really? Yeah. Uh, and so, despite it being such a huge movie, and I'm interested in your perspective in it. Uh, oh, my gosh. So, okay. here we go with, again, 2002's My Big Fat Greek Wedding. Mm-hmm. It currently has a 76% on Rotten Tomatoes. Hi. Did you want to see some brochures? <gasps> cordially invited to America's funniest new comedy. If you hurt her, I'll kill you and make it look like an accident. Hey, Ian, we're gonna kill you. Two thumbs up. <laughs> Heartfelt and hilarious. It's a mosquito bite. It's a zip. One party you shouldn't miss. She's a rabbit! Four stars. Oh! My big fat Greek wedding. Rated PG. Now playing. This film was directed by Jules Wick. It was written by Nia Varalos. It was uh, released April 19th, 2002. On a budget of $5 million, it made $368.7 million. They tried to make a TV shot of it. They made a sequel movie out of it years later. This thing blew up. A frumpy gal from an immigrant family takes her life into her own hands and finds love with an outsider as cultures clash and customs get questioned. My synopsis for this one is going to be a bit controversial, so sorry to the listeners and sorry to Uh-oh. you as well. Uh-oh. <laughs> okay. So, do you remember 
being annoyed at all the conversations from adults about, hey, why are you not married yet? Why are you not have any children yet? So my big fat Greek wedding is the Greek version of it. Enjoy. There. <laughs> is is Tom Hanks still producing movies under the Playtone label? Does Playtone exist as a film production company anymore? Oh, that's that's actually a very good question. I don't and think I, so. I and I should have I should have looked into this prior to you know going going on to going going to you know doing this with you because it's also something that's very interesting when i noticed the opening credits it was like produced by tom hanks and rita wilson and i was like yeah. what <laughs> <laughs> yeah um this one is real so i've never seen this movie before mm, okay and what's i obviously knew and had absorbed a lot of it by like osmosis right because mm. it was so huge and it's a very simple premise, right? But, uh, I was previously married, and um, I married a cross culturally, essentially. Okay. Um, and I married, you know, the person I married was definitely American, second generation American, but some of her grandparents, most of her aunts and uncles, and a lot of her cousins uh, grew up in Italy. Mm-hmm. And many of them did not speak English, especially the older generation. They didn't speak English at all. And the English they did speak was kind of a made up English. It's like half. <laughs> and it wasn't, they weren't just from Italy. They weren't speaking like classical Italian. Mm-hmm. They were from a fishing community in the southern part of Italy. And that the area they're from has a very distinct dialect from the rest of Italian. Oh, so really? they speak a very. Um, very specific kind of backwoods. I don't mean that a derogatory, but just a very, <laughs> it's a lot of slang. There's a lot of specific mm. slang and the pronunciation of vowels is different. And just, it's a whole thing. So, and just culturally, if you could remove, you could swap everything about this movie and put me in the John Corbett role and put my ex-wife into the role, although she was a, a little bit more like the older sister because she was the older sister. Right. Um, and the, but the family dynamics, everything like that was pretty much the same. Right. And the holidays and the get togethers and you, know, you, you just swap out some of the food, you know, for uh, <laughs> some of the food, but and, and some of the customs and then you swap up Greek Orthodox for Catholic and it was the exact same thing. Mm-hmm. And what you recognize is what I recognize having lived that experience is that for immigrant populations, the reason why this stuff becomes so important is because they're trying to keep their culture intact. Right. And they're watching kids and each successive generation become more and more Americanized. And they know less and less of the language and and they care about less and less of the culture and the customs. The church that I was supposed to have gotten married in, which I did not, was a church that when that family first came to this country in like the 70s, Hmm. that was where they landed because in in Cleveland, that is where every one of the big uh, churches where basically everybody from their village, when they came to America, if they came to Cleveland, they moved into that neighborhood and they went to that church and they went to that Catholic school. And the the church had its own school. And in that school, they spoke Italian, not English. And this Mm -hmm. is in the 70s. So even when you were in America, you went to a school where they only spoke Italian. 
they didn't have condiments in their refrigerators growing up because condiments don't have uh, ketchup and mustard and all this Americanized condiment shit in Italy. So the generation, like uh, my ex-wife's older cousins, they didn't grow up with American cheeses. They didn't grow up with American food. They didn't Mm -hmm. grow up with condiments. They didn't grow up with, and they felt like outsiders because while they would maybe spend some of them would spend summers or maybe even a couple of years in Italy, they, they wanted to be Americans and their fam, their parents wanted them to be Italians first. Mm-hmm. And there was, it was always constant conflict in the family over what was observed, what wasn't observed, speak, you know, speak Italian, don't speak English. When we're together, you know, speak Italian at the table and the kids that didn't want to learn Italian, it was, it was just a whole thing. And, and there is this sort of loss of identity through assimilation that happens. And so people hold on to that stuff. The, the gardens, the fountains <laughs> in the yard <laughs> definitely had family members in Parma. Who that, their house looked exactly the same, but instead of the Greek flag on the garage door, it was the Italian flag. Right. It was in the, you know, in the Mary's and the, everything, everything is exactly the same. There were conversations about me converting religions. There was all this sort of stuff. <laughs> oh, it was, my goodness. So this movie is spot on, 100%. Right. Every characterization is right. Uh, and obviously, there's a lot of overlap between Greek and Italian culture because it's a very similar part sure. of the world, the Mediterranean. Yep, I was about to say um, that. Yeah, but it was like, I was, it was honestly, parts of it were like, it was like, they were like memories for me. It wasn't, I wasn't <laughs> watching a movie. I was like, oh, this was my life for a decade. This was my life. So, yeah. Uh, what do you, what do you think about it? Have you seen this before? Uh, what, what do you, what are your thoughts? Yes, I have. And, you know, thanks to you inviting me on this podcast, it was, you know, it was like a chance for me to, you know, rewatch this and to really go back into the backlog that I have. And I was like, oh, hey, I have this. And I want to see it again, but I've never found the right time until now. So it, it was, it was, it was cute. It was so yes. charming. It was cute to the point. I guess some critics would uh, even say that it's saccharine, which which is true. Which is true. I mean, I get where where they're coming from, but mm-hmm. uh, you know, sometimes you know, <laughs> I guess. He needs. He needs some honey. You know, your beignet needs some sugar. So you know, I mean, I don't mind having a little bit of sugar in my life once in a while. And you know, my big fat Greek wedding is exactly the kind that I need. So <laughs> basically, everything you said about you know cross cultural quote unquote conflicts that we might have is that's also that's and oh and also how like easily swappable the cultures and the people are i guess it's exactly the same that well may most of the time the 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 dynamics you know if you swap uh, if you swap this family for you know foreign uh vietnamese um uh, vietnamese in america then you know it certain conversations and then certain yeah, imagery right. <laughs> would play out exactly the same way but you know <laughs> well, don't you think that's partly why this movie was so successful? Because when you have, like, going to what I was saying about immigrant populations who are in America or really anywhere in the world, but are trying to hold on to their culture, the older mm-hmm. generation is, they're trying to hold on to 
whether it be Vietnamese culture, Italian culture, mm-hmm. Greek culture, Cambodian culture, uh, Mozambican culture, whatever it may be, Italian culture. The movie kind of is, in a sense, universal. You could kind of go, okay, for us, it's we don't say like upa, and we're not drinking ouzo, we're drinking this, and we're saying that. But it's mm-hmm. the premise is the same. You know, especially if you're coming from what is traditional as like warmer cultures, because the juxtaposition between the waspy family and how cold everything is yeah. and kind of impersonal versus, you know, in this case, a Mediterranean or even maybe like, you know, uh, Asian cultures, warmer cultures, uh, uh, Latino cultures, Hispanic cultures, where there's an expectation of uh, hospitality and of having a feast and a celebration and And when you invite somebody over, you're not just inviting them over for to sit there in silence. You invite them over and it it becomes a celebration. It becomes a feast because that is how you show welcome. That is that that's how you honor your guest. Mm -hmm. Um, And that's true of basically most cultures outside of like America and like Great Britain. (laughs) Like, you know, and so so I think there's something about this movie that is translatable to two thirds or more of the entire world, right? Absolutely, because <clears throat> I also guess uh, I would also say that you know the film comes out at at um, kind of like a time when the okay. Uh, just to preface this a little bit is that you know I think the uh, Western or the Anglosphere way of life has always been a little bit. Uh, isolated and uh, you know exclusionary not yeah. with not with malice but you know sometimes uh, privacy based you know like yes you know, i i respect my space i have i have a sanctuary i have a certain circles and i would like to be you know to know that the only i am the only person who populates the circle that kind of yeah. thing yeah so my big fat Greek wedding was all about, you know, trying to break out of that. Or if you would like to phrase it in another way, try to expand that circle so that more people can get in. Yeah. Uh, so it just really shows that the, uh, you know, collectivism being outside of that circle is not at all dangerous. It can actually be fun. It's It's going to create a whole lot of, you know, like, so, uh, uh, how do you say it? Communication pratfalls or yeah, yeah. a whole lot of silly situations. But at the end of the day, you will always uh, you will always emerge with a smile. Basically, when you try to bring a bring a lot more people in, try to taste a little bit of collectivism as yeah. opposed to being eternally exclusionary you know so. and, and individualistic yeah exactly right. there we go there we go yeah you're you're 100 right because mm-hmm. because the movie really yeah you're spot on the movie really gets at this tension which is she's making decisions for herself and the yes. family especially the dad interprets is why are you doing this to us and there she's like go. i'm not doing it to you i'm doing it for me mm-hmm. but it's it's a difference being because she is she was raised in America. She's more predominantly American culturally. So she's thinking more individualistically, whereas the dad and the, and the mom and everybody, and the rest of the family, they think more collectivistically because they were raised in a different culture, mm-hmm. even though they've lived here for a while. 
And that's a hundred percent right. Yeah. Cause like just the difference between sort of the Anglo background, like you were saying, where you, you, you walk into a room and you say, you wave from a distance and go, hello, how are you? If, if you're, if you even say hello, you just sort of li- raise your hand and just say hello versus like, again, a warmer culture, collectivistic culture where you're kissing on both sides of the cheek, you're hugging, you're, Oh, you know, there, there's are you hungry? No, I've already eaten. Okay. I'll make you something to eat. Because yeah, ask, ask them to stay for dinner. Yes, tell, yes. tell them to ask their parents to come over for dinner next time. Correct, correct. Yeah. Do they right. like to go, do they like to go fish? Next time I'll bring a boat or yes, something right. like that. It's just <laughs> Yeah. You know, it's exactly the kind of statements and the, uh, the kind of views that, you know, to an anglocentric person, they would be like, "The heck?" <laughs> it well, it's almost like because for anglos, it's almost an invasion of personal space. There we go. Saying. Yes. So Yeah, as but as it's not actually an invasion of personal space, it's actually inclusion. Mm-hmm. And and the warmer culture, the collectivistic culture, feels like we're falling short in our the honor of our family if we don't make you feel welcome. Right. They're not trying to invade your personal space. They're trying to honor you to save face for the reputation of their family. Right. There you go. And, that, and that's why there's so much, if you reject that stuff, there's so much pain. It feels like it's dishonor because you now have forced them, that family to lose face mm-hmm. because you're not accepting these gifts and the hospitality and whatever. And that makes them look bad. And it was right. like, you know, and it's like, so, you know, one of the things that's famous in Italian families is they keep a book. Okay. Mm-hmm. It's a family book. Each individual family in the larger family has a book. And in that book, it's a registry of every gift anybody in the family has ever given or received and the dollar value of it. Right. Because I have to look, be able to look up and go, well, John gave this person this amount of money for their wedding. Now we're going to John's daughter's wedding. So we have to give that or more for his daughter at their wedding. And it's not, it can become one upsmanship, but it's not a matter of one upsmanship. It's a matter of, we have to honor, we were honored in this way. We have to reciprocate that honor back. Mm-hmm. And if you don't understand that, and Anglos don't understand that, you know, when I learned about this book, I'm like, wait, there's a book. And it goes back generations. It's like, well, when this baby, when, when your great uncle was born, this side of the family did this. So now that the great nephew is born, we got to do this. And you're, like, <laughs> <laughs> you're keeping track of this stuff. For generations of who did what for who, you know, and um, that's just such a not an individualistic, cold culture, Anglo way of thinking about things. It's, mm-hmm. it's yeah, it's it, it, because and you're not you're not thinking about how your individual actions reflect on the legacy of, of your family. <laughs> yes, it's just like what you do is just an extension or an or an, an expansion of uh, what's already there. It's not an uprooting. It's not a, you know, uh, eradication of what's already there. Yeah. And, but, you know, on that note, I would just like to say that what the film, and especially the script from, you know, our lead, uh, Tula Nia Vardalos here, what she also did so so well was just that she's not villainizing anybody in here even though even though uh, tula has so much friction with uh, the you know 
uh, other people in the other people in the family, especially Gus, her dad. <laughs> yeah. But you know, it makes sense. You, the um, the 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 restraint or the restrictions or the limitations or you know anything that prevents her from anything that prevents Tula from manifesting her destiny. Basically, it there, there's a point to that. There's 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 sense in that and. Mm. You can relate to that as opposed to, you know, your usual uh, good versus evil kind of like villain and hero argument in other films. It's just like stop, pre- stop preventing the hero from doing the good stuff. It, it's not like that, you know. It's there's there's actually this cause. There's there's a theme and there's a background to it. So yeah. I I really appreciate that. But maybe that's also why it. Uh, causes a lot of cause a, a lot of critics to say that maybe this is too pleasant for me. Maybe this is a little bit too sweet for me. But hey, I, I I'm with you there though because uh, having not seen the movie, I thought okay, once we're introduced to his um family, the Anglo's, I'm thinking okay, well these stodgy wasps, they're going to be kind of the villains and whatever, whatever, and they're maybe sort of set up like you could see it go, but they're not. They end, you know, it's, it's the movie is not about like you're saying who's right. Who's wrong. What culture is superior? What culture is inferior? What culture is better? What culture is worse? It's just simply a movie about different cultures and the, the, the conflict drama at times, pain, humor that, that derives from that. Absolutely. That's what it's about. It's not about villainizing, like you said, anybody that's involved in this. It's just simply a movie about differences and how love can bridge the gap of those differences. And, and in a worse movie, you know what would happen? At some point, the conflict from the family and this and that gets and puts too much stress on the couple. And like a typical rom-com, they break up. And the dad, <laughs> the dad, <laughs> Gus, has to go find John Corbett's character and convince him to give his daughter another chance. And it was really his fault. And blah, 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 blah. And then they get back together just in time for the wedding. I right. am so glad that this movie doesn't have any of that. Yeah, These are just yeah. two characters who love each other. He's willing to do whatever it takes to make it work because he loves her. And like the brother says, uh, as he's getting baptized in oil in a Greek Orthodox church as a grown man and a kid's, <laughs> kids, whatever. She's like, I'm not sure I'm worth all of that. And the brother looks at her and goes, yes, you are. Right. That's it. That's what the movie is about. That if you love somebody, you, you, uh, he says it. John Corbett's character says it. He's like, cause she's like embarrassed by her family. And he's like, I'm not embarrassed by your family mm-hmm. because you are the product of your family and I love you. Right. So I love where you come from because that's what made you who you are. And yeah, is that saccharine? Sure is. But boy, sometimes the, the, I think the world could use a, a greater dose of diversity, equity, and inclusion. <laughs> <laughs> is, is this a committee now? <laughs> <laughs> no, I'm I'm a DEI consultant, uh, so I get to we're we're gonna me and you we're both we're gonna charge our audience. Great sums of money for the, our conversation here. <laughs> yes, I, 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 yeah, I guess I do appreciate that. I, I do need, um, you know, my eight dollars for Twitter Blue, something like that. Yeah, there the you 20th. go. <laughs> but you're right. But you said it, you said it yourself. 
sometimes you do need honey in your tea. Sometimes it's nice to have a little sugar sprinkled in there. And that's what this movie is. That's what this movie is for me for the week. It's a little bit of sugar in the midst of, other than the James Bond movie, a bunch of pretty decent <laughs> movies. Uh, and so I give this I give this one an 8 out of 10. It's my number three for the week. That's a very enjoyable, charming, cute movie. What's your right. uh, score? What's your rank? Uh, I'm... I'm a 7.75 on this one. We're right again. We're right there with each other. So right. I, I've lost track of the ranks. Where's that rank for you? That is that uh, your number three as well. Third place. Correct. Okay. So this is where we split. I think we split over this last film, which is Steven, Steven Spielberg's minority report, which currently has a 90% on rotten tomatoes. Detective John Anderton arrested the guilty before they committed a crime. I'm placing you under arrest for the future murder of Sarah Marks. Until he saw something he wasn't supposed to see. You're in a lot of trouble, John. No question. Now, to prove his innocence. He set me up! You can't run! He must solve the mystery. I have to find out what happened in my life. The FBI found something. And defy the system. Don't trust anyone. Just find the minority report. Minority Report, rated PG-13, Friday. Minority Report was directed by Steven Spielberg. It was written by Scott Frank and John Cohen and a bunch of other people who sued, but who didn't fi get final credit. Went to arbitration with the Writers Guild of America. <laughs> uh, Frank Darabont was one of those people. Right. It is based on the Minority Report by Philip K. Dick. It's the triumph return of Frank Grillo, last seen in Avengers Endgame. Triumph return of the late great Max von Sydow, last seen in The Force Awakens. I still have no idea who his character was in star wars they never explained it uh it was the triumph return of tom cruise i think last seen in jerry Maguire, and it is the triumph return of peter stormare last seen in armageddon the film was released june 21st 2002 on a budget of 102 million dollars the film made 358.4 million a future cop with a tragic past busts killers before their crimes until he becomes the most wanted for something he hasn't done Imagine the billboards that says don't do drugs or think twice before you uh, DWI. <laughs> right. Ima imagine those. But now they actually like swoop down and grab you by the neck and say what they say on the billboard. So <laughs> they know you, they know your name. <laughs> yes. <laughs> so, uh, but also what if, they swoop down and grab you by the neck, and it turns out that you are the creator of the signs themselves, of the billboards themselves. That's Minority Report for me. Mm. <laughs> I have revisited this movie uh, a couple times since it came out, but I haven't seen it in a long time. And I thought mm -hmm. for sure this is going to be a, my lock for number one with a bullet. This is what it is, because I really like the movie. Right. It's my number two, obviously. Mm -hmm. uh, we'll get to the score at the end. Right. Um, how, how do I? Want All right. To what's wrong here? What, <laughs> what's wrong with what's wrong with the future picture here? Just okay. saying. All right. Let, let's unpack this in some layers. Okay. So, like signs, there's a theological layer, which is dealing with precognition, predestination, mm. predetermination versus free will. They it's very on the nose because they say, "Well, we're more clergy than cops, chief, because we're changing <laughs> people's destinies." The sentry is named Gideon. Gideon is playing a, a freaking uh, 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 organ, church pipe organ, <laughs> is playing <laughs> Jesu, Joy of Man's Desiring. Uh, 
Danny Whitwer is a deeply religious Irish Catholic from Dublin whose father was killed on a steps of the Catholic Church. But when he says he, when he claims he went to seminary, he claims he studied at Fuller, which is, I think, in Pasadena. I know because I studied at Fuller. And, <laughs> <laughs> uh, and that's an evangelical seminary. So it's not impossible that a Catholic would study in an evangelical seminary, but it is unusual. Um, there's futurism. The, the another layer, which is predictive technology in, in future uh, societal advancements and advertising, like you're talking about, biometric and, and targeted advertising, which we now live more and more in a world of. We're not quite at the level of this movie, but we're getting closer by the day. I mean, just say it. Not as cool. Not as cool. Yeah. <laughs> but, not as invasive know, yet, but it's right. getting there. The I think it was interesting is the idea of smart paper. Instead of they didn't invent smartphones, instead they invented, invented, invented newspapers that can change mm. via Wi-Fi, probably, which is a no. bit funny <laughs> since newspapers don't exist anymore, really. Mm. Um, I think the jetpack stuff is as about, a well, about as well executed as Back to the Future 2, despite coming out nearly 20 years later. Right. <laughs> and maybe not even as well executed. It did predict mm. Bluetooth earpieces, which oh, became, yeah. eventually became a reality, but then we moved past them. So, so apparently Bluetooth earpieces are going to make a resurgence uh, in the next 20 years. Mm-hmm. The movie also is a bit of speculative fiction, moral implications of safety and justice versus freedom and free will, which is actually really relevant in America post 9-11. Right. Um, then there's, of course, the idea that what, what is pre-crime? The idea of pre-crime is like fascistic doublespeak. It's like Orwellian mm-hmm. doublespeak. Mm-hmm. We're going to prosecute you for something that you haven't done yet because we say you're going to do it. Right. Pre-crime. <laughs> and honestly, this is where Spielberg, I think, shines, his direction shines in this movie, which is from the very beginning, them arresting people is presented in a very, the camera angles are fascistic. This, the, the pre-crime and everything about it is, is a fascist regime. A hundred percent there. It's just everything about it. Um, there's obviously the mystery element to it, which is, you know, Agatha's named after Agatha Christie, Sir Arthur Conan Doyle, uh, and Dashiell Hammett. Um, the opening is very Hitchcockian, you know, you know, I'm blind without my glasses, the camera angles, everything he's doing there, uh, is very, um, Hitchcockian. Um, I do think what's interesting is I think the Spielbergian hokey comedy, jetpacks, yoga, six sticks, Etc. that comes out of nowhere in this movie mm-hmm. mixed with the melancholy noir mystery elements and the futurism. They don't blend well for me. Uh, I and I think this is a movie that doesn't need his sense of humor. I think there's movies he makes after this that desperately need his sense of humor. This uh, one actually okay. doesn't need it. And I have, I'm a bit infamous on the internet in certain circles that you and I travel in because I posited a theory on somebody else's podcast that Spielberg's last populist entry was Jurassic Park. And it was the last time he actually had actual legitimate control over the broader film narrative. And that he went down a rabbit hole of making things that he was interested in mm-hmm. and reflecting upon his own childhood and the events that shaped his father and his father's generation, basically just nothing but World War II movies. Uh, and I think of the movies of the last part of his career this is the one that you would think would be the most broadly appealing commercially right but it is not it's in the bottom 10 for the year nowhere close to the top 10 uh, dollars and cents wise 
nor is it necessarily remembered all that much. This is almost a forgotten Spielberg film. Mm. And I think that just goes to strengthen my argument that the last great populist movie he made was Jurassic Park. And not to say he hasn't made great movies since or good movies since, but I think this is a sign of the increasing irrelevance of Steven Spielberg. This movie is a major turning point that from this point forward, almost everything he does is going to mean less than it did the previous two decades. Has anybody told you that's kind of like the kind of take that would broil a creme brulee? <laughs> <laughs> Expand upon that. You come at me. <laughs> <laughs> I mean, uh, but it's I I would say that I can I can see where you're coming from, especially with his material becoming less and less. Um, how do you say it? Uh, fantastical. Yeah. Even even Ready Player One. <clears throat> even Ready Player One, uh, for all of its all of its fantastical elements, has some kind of like. Well, to some people, they're a ball and chain, but then to me, it's just kind of like uh, uh, it, it has to remember where it's offshooting from, where it's stemming from. So, you know, Ready Player One, despite it being in the VR world, metaverse, whatever you want to call it, uh, yeah. but it's still, it's still grounded in uh, reality in some way. For this one, for Minority Report, it was just like way out there, even though even though there's already that foundation from Philip K. Dick, but then, you know, there's no like official imagery on that yet until yeah. Spielberg came, uh, came in and then provide that for us. So I would agree on like wholeheartedly on the point that he uh, post minority report, he's, he doesn't really believe in the uh, fantastical anymore yeah but that is not necessarily a bad thing i again i don't necessarily think it's a bad thing but mm. i do think there's a demarcation mm. and maybe you could say you won't say this but maybe i would say that minority report is the last gasp of steven spielberg's imagination <laughs> maybe he becomes a better filmmaker in some regards after mm -hmm. this movie but he's a less imaginative filmmaker. And therefore I think, and also he's just getting older. This was a guy who had his finger on the pulse from the eighties into the nineties. And he's reached a new period of his career, his life. Right. And you see it with all filmmakers, his finger is no longer on the pulse. I would say his finger is not even really on the pulse with minority report, despite how good it is. It doesn't have the cultural impact in Spielberg from this point forward, after Saving Private Ryan, really, does not have the cultural impact. A movie, which I think is a very good movie, one of the best movies I saw last year in The Fablemans, mm -hmm. is a flop. Uh, that is true. Should it have been? No. But no. It, people are not interested. And younger audiences, younger filmgoers, younger than us, and you are younger than me, mm -hmm. uh, unless they're hardcore cinephiles, he does not mean what he meant to me and the generation above me and maybe your generation to younger zoomers. And again, that's not to say he started making bad movies. It's just to say his moment passed. 
Mm. from a man who had almost complete control over Hollywood <laughs> to a guy who, despite the quality of his films, they come and go and people don't think about them. They don't talk about them. He's not a particularly um, frequently with younger film fans and younger film critics. He's not a source code of reference. He's not uh, in many ways. He becomes supplanted by the, by the Christopher Nolans of the world. The next right. decade is not about Steven Spielberg. And the, and the decade after that's not about Steven Spielberg. It becomes about the Nolans and um, uh, 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 who am I thinking of? Um, Denny Villeneuve. Oh. What's that? Denny Villeneuve. Yeah. Yeah. There you go. Denis is another one, but I'm thinking of, um, oh my gosh, Mindhunter 7. Uh, David Fincher? Uh, yeah, Fincher. Okay. Yes. It's the Finchers, it's the Villeneuve's, or Villeneuve's, it's the, uh, <laughs> it's the, uh, it's the Nolans. It's all of these people who have, it's, in some ways, it's Guillermo del Toro. Mm. And, and, and in fact, in this year, it's, uh, it's, it's, uh, our, our, our guy, uh, gosh, I'm having a brain fart again. <laughs> <laughs> no worries. Who, who directed Lord of the Rings? Peter Jackson. Peter Jackson. It's Peter Jackson. Right. You know, it, 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 it becomes, it's in some cases you could say Sam Raimi because he's getting ready to launch the Spider-Man series mm. it's the Raimi's it's the Peter J it's actually a bunch of genre filmmakers in the previous decades who are now making the blockbusters that Spielberg would have made a decade before mm. and I also think Spielberg yeah. other than Ready Player One is really reticent to dive into IP territory and from two the early 2000s until the day you and I are sitting here <laughs> recording this it's all IP it's all Spider-Man and another in another decade Steven Spielberg is directing Spider-Man Mm. or Robert Zemeckis is with Michael J. Fox as Peter Parker or whatever, you know, whatever oh gosh, James Cameron no. is. Oh, why? <laughs> <laughs> it's the truth. But instead they're, they, they just, these guys go off on their own little tangents and they essentially seed the, the, the top of the, the heap to mm. a new generation. And, mm -hmm. you know, again, I'm not saying good, bad. I'm just saying different. And this movie, I think, is indicative of that turning point. But those are just those are my thoughts. I want to leave room for you now. <laughs> um, well, to me, Minority Report is <clears throat> is what I go to the movies for, basically. Mm. Except for the except for the ending of it, which seems so neat, uh, comparing to all the you know all the complexities and you new. Know, "Quote unquote moral gray." Uh, before that, it's uh, mm. this is exactly the kind of what if that I would be willingly to pay a ticket for opening night and a ticket for for the matinee on the next day. It's um, because, like you said, it seems to be. Yes, I do agree that maybe this is uh, Spielberg operating at his, you know, his his visual fidelity has always been high. But then, yes. you know, for Minority Report, it seems to be like transcendental. It's like next mm. level. And not to mention the fact that it was so, I mean, it's so up there to the point that, uh, you know, like, you know, like I watched Minority Report multiple times, but 
I didn't even realize until a friend of mine pointed out that, you know that this film almost looks like a black and white film? It was only then that I realized, oh, crap. It, it actually, does actually. Yeah. <laughs> oh crap! It actually almost looks, uh, almost looks like a noir graphic novel, something like yes. Frank, something like Frank Miller would make. You know, it's um. So yeah, it's. I mean, but now, all I can remember is all the points you've made <laughs> about you know him, <laughs> and you know the lessening of the imagination or the you know the magic slipping away from his uh, fingers and all that sort of stuff. I whenever I watch this film, I would never have a melancholy. You know, I would never register. I would never associate melancholy with watching Minority Report ever because. Uh, it has always been so thrilling. It has always been this kind of work that I would just put in when one, I have no idea what to watch, or mm. two, whenever I need to learn something about the art of filmmaking. Mm. And yeah, basically, and or three, let me add another reason. Or three, when I need to remind myself, like. Why in the world is Samantha Morton not a bigger star right now? <laughs> That's a great question. <laughs> so, yeah. Yeah. You know what? Honestly, that's a really great question because as far as the acting goes, I think all the acting is great in this film. Mm-hmm. Um, but as far as of all the acting, the only note that I have as far as acting is concerned is two words, Samantha Morton. Mm-hmm. Because when they get Agatha out of that milk bath, and she becomes an active participant in the movie, this whole film rises another level. There we go, yes. Yeah, and, and um, everything she does, I mean, at, at, from that point forward, she's carrying this movie on her back. Mm-hmm. Yeah. And she, okay, I'm not saying that Tom Cruise is bad here, but Samantha Morton clearly, so vividly, she runs laps around Cruz. Yes. She runs, she, and so effortlessly too. So I guess the only time that, uh, the only another time that I saw this happening again to Cruz was when uh, in uh, Oblivion, when Andrea Riseborough, also my introduction to her. Same. I was like, who are you and why are you running laps around Tom Cruise? I like you. Where can I see more of you? That kind of deal. Are you still a good are you what is it, are you still a good and efficient team or something like that? <laughs> <coughs> um are, effective. Are you still an effective team? Yeah. And yeah. she has to answer that question. Yeah, and and yeah, I, I'm right there with you because Andrea Riceboro is having to respond to the exact same statement over and over again because she has to report back to the mm-hmm. the tesseract or whatever. The and you're like, how how much emotion and pathos can somebody wring out of nothing dialogue? And I, yeah, and you're mm. like, you're acting circles around Tom Cruise. Right. <laughs> it's the same thing here with Samantha Morton. She's just. You know, she's she's a, a precog who lives in a milk bath mm-hmm. and is doped up on uh, endorphins most of the movie. And 
is, is like a barely stand and walk. And she's like on the floor out acting him, literally laying on the floor out acting Tom Cruise <laughs> in a scene where he meets the supposed killer of his son, molester and murderer of his son. And she's laying on the floor in the corner, whispering and not acting it. Right. <laughs> <laughs> You're like, holy moly, what a talent. Yeah. And I guess I'm also, I mean, in a way that I guess I'm a sucker for uh, the kind of performances that your character, the, the kind of performances where um, the character holds a lot of power. The character is almost like influential to where the movie goes or how the movie looks or whatever to the movie. But yeah, the but they themselves don't realize that. So, for example, like uh, in uh, uh, Parasite, um, for the Madame of the House, uh, played by Jo uh, Yo Jong, she is that she. Her performance actually reminds me so much of Samantha Morton's in Minority mm. Report because, like, she gets to decide who, the madame. She gets to decide who gets in the house. She gets to decide who does what in the house. And because of a very, uh, you know, kind of like, I would say, passive kind of husband who lets all the decision making power to her and she mm -hmm. was like she holds the most power she is the most powerful character in parasite mm -hmm. but she doesn't realize that and here uh it's not exactly a one one the same thing for um agatha in minority report because over time she learns how to you know uh she learns how to be become normal and that's i would say that's the that's that's her uh character end goal that's the power that she wants to achieve but you know initially it was just it was just so <sighs> i i i always imagine that when you try to embody when you try to play a role like that you have to balance yourself in a way that you know you hold a lot of power that but then you have to act it out. You have to show it in a way that you don't know what to do with it. I'm not being set up. You have to take me home. You said so yourself. There is no minority report. I don't have an alternate future. I am going to kill this man. You still have a choice. The others never saw that future. You still have a choice. Leo, Crow. Who the hell are you? You're you're almost childlike, but then you're not at the same time. You're 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 about to be in a transitional phase, like from child to mature, and it's mm. It, it involves a lot. It involves a lot of thought. It involves a lot of dramatics. Sometimes it involves acting choices that maybe is irrational to the surrounding environment. But you have to make that work. You have to sell it somehow. And yeah. well, here we go. Like Samantha Porton, like she does it every single time, spot on, as if like she was born for this. It's the mark of a good role is that I cannot see anybody else playing Agatha, and mm, well, yeah. hey, there, there we go. It, it's an it's an exceptionally interesting film, and I think it pairs very well with Signs. 
<laughs> because they're both in a sense about predeterminism versus free right, will. right, 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 right. Okay, okay, I see what you mean here. Okay, right, like, mm-hmm. and, and, I, and I, they're almost opposite sides of the same coin because Samantha Morton's character, her one of the things that she says to Cruz, and what this is, I think, the stroke of genius in this movie is when the Leo Crow situation. Mm. She's in the corner and she's like, just actually, before they even get upstairs, she's like, just leave, just leave John. And he's like, I have to, I have to see him. I have to go there. She's like, no, you don't. And, and then he's just like, he says something to her. He's like, you, you know, um, you can't change the future. Like, yeah, like, uh, you already told me I'm going to kill him. So I'm going to kill this man, you know, whatever, whatever. And she's like, no, none of the other people knew what their future was. So they couldn't have made a different decision, but you know, mm-hmm. you know, what's waiting for you. I'm paraphrased in that room. So you don't have to go up there. And then when he's up there, he she says, you can choose, John, you can choose, you can choose. Like you have free will, you have free will, you have free will. And, and you're like, okay, okay, okay. I get where the movie's going. Then the movie completely fucks your shit up because <laughs> he chooses not to kill the guy, right? And instead, mm-hmm. reads him his rights, and the guy dies exactly as Agatha saw. Anyway. And wait a second. So, did he ever actually have a choice, or did he always choose not to kill him? Mm. Was it already predetermined before everything was set in motion? And, of course, there's the question, and Danny Whitware asked this question, and this is, of course, the causality loop thing, which is, would he, ha- would have, would he have done it had he not known he was going to do it? What's really going to bake your noodle later on is, would you still have broken it if I hadn't said anything? Mm-hmm. Would he ever actually have the option to not be in that room. And the movie does not answer that question. I, I know there's a lot of criticism toward the ending. Mm-hmm. I don't mind the ending. It, it does. I don't mind that it's neat. It, it feels like it, all, it wraps up very, very quickly. Though, right, there we go. Like you said, I guess the ending for the film, I went, and when I say that, you know, it was too neat, it was more on this, uh, it was more um, over the fact that you said it was more about the, the, the speed of it, the delivery of it, as opposed yeah. to what, as opposed to what it is, you know, mm, mm. Uh, I guess, <laughs> to be honest, I've always thought about this and, you know, I really don't have a right to, but I'm, I mean, but I'm just going to say it anyway. Sure. <laughs> all that it needs, all the ending needs in order to be perfect to me was just maybe two more lines, two more, two more lines to be narrated. And then that's it. It is good that the pre-crime program is over, but what happens after like just two lines about that before, before going back to like, but maybe something less hokey than, but you know, but I couldn't care about that because now Agatha is okay. Then something like that. Here, here's what I think. I think if they do what you're saying and they add a line of dialogue of, okay, we got rid of pre-crime in DC, right? Which mm-hmm. has been disbanded. What happens to the murder rate? Exactly. Right? And then, because if you tell us what happens to the murder rate and the murder rate goes back up through the roof, 
and then we see Agatha happy, it leaves us, leaves the audience with the question of, was it worth it? Is one person's autonomy worth the lives of thousands and thousands of people? Or was pre, because that's part of the tension of this is. Exactly. If you had a more fascist government type criminal <laughs> justice system, but it but it it worked and it mm. saved lives. Is that giving up a freedom, even metaphysical freedom of the future mm. and free will, worth it? And I think by by giving us that juxtaposition of okay, this thing's been disbanded and she's now a free person and Anderton's happy and whatever. And he's got his replacement kid on the way, which is a movie trope. I, I can't stand. Right. Um, <laughs> but, but the cost of it is tens of thousands of people are dead. In DC. <laughs> <laughs> that leaves, that, that, that leaves the audience with the feeling of damn, was it worth it? Right. Right. Which I think is, it was, is really what you feel throughout the entirety of the movie. But the fact that they don't address the consequences of disbanding the program kind of leaves us with a nothing. So I mm -hmm. think that's, I think you're spot on with that. I think that <laughs> it needs to address that. What is the fallout from the happy ending? Mm -hmm. I think the only way for this to work is that the audiences who are watching this film are living in a society where they realize that, oh, maybe to not criminalize our society maybe we just realize that the power to do that is within ourselves but we're not that right so right, right. that's why that's why i don't that's why i really don't think that there's any way where we have an ending for this film that for the for this adaptation to be more specific for this adaptation of uh you know of the story to work but the one that we have is the one where we feel good even though the good has a big ass question mark to it yeah you know the goodness of it <laughs> to me the question of minority report is is one man's happiness worth the price of everybody else's safety when, when does a minority report become a universal mandate, right? Yes. Mm. Yes. Man, you just said it barely than I could have said it myself. <laughs> so let's button it up. 8.5 out of 10 for me. Number two for the week. I re still really enjoy the movie, mm -hmm. but uh, it's surprisingly not the best of the week for me. So uh, uh -huh. this is obviously your number one. What's your score? It's got to be nine or higher. 9.5. Whoa! 9.5 out of 10. Yes, and I'm, wow. actually, I'm going to rewatch this right after finishing this podcast. So, you know, thank you. <laughs> so thank you, I guess. Thank you, question mark. <laughs> okay, well, it's time for a recap. This blue eye perceives all things conjoined. The past, the future, and the present. Everything flows and all is connected. This eye is not merely seeing reality. It is touching the truth. Coming in dead last for me was Die Another Day, which I gave a 3 out of 10. Uh, number 4 for me was Ice Age, 7.25 out of 10. That's a 4 
but it's not a low four because look, you know, it's a seven point two five. The next one's a three. So there's a world of difference between those two <laughs> movies for me. Number three was the charming first time watch, my big fat Greek wedding. Number two is Minority Report. Again, I think the dying days of the imaginative Spielberg before he went dadcore. And number one <laughs> is, uh, or number two rather, is Signs with an 8.75 out of 10. And my number, uh, no, 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 I'm sorry. My number two, my number two is Minority Report with an 8.5 out of 10. And my number one, the addition I'm adding to the shortlist for the season as we head towards last movie standing is Signs, which I give an 8.75 out of 10. What is your recap? Fifth place, die another day. I, uh, if I remember correctly, I have it at three. I mean, I yep. could go lower if I want to, but <laughs> I'll be nice. <laughs> In fourth place, I have Ice Age, which I remember I put it at seven. It was either uh, seven or seven point two five. We were right there with each other. Oh, uh, what did you have? Seven point two five. I have it. I think I have it at seven, like seven point oh. So yeah, yeah, yeah. I could raise it up if you want to, but no, no, it's fine. But I'm not that nice. I mean, I'm nicer to not degrade Die Another Day further, but I'm not nice enough to raise Ice Age up a little bit more. So, you know, just yeah. just to be clear on that. My third place is my big fat Greek wedding. I have it at seven point seven five. Second place is Signs at nine, and Minority Report at the top with nine point five. So you know. If this is uh, if this is kind of like a NASCAR race, you know the car that crosses the finish uh, the finish line is the a red Lexus. So there you go, very good. If you had to recommend one movie for our audience to check out, doesn't have to be your number one, just something you think, hey, I think this is worth checking out. What would it be from this week? Science. Yeah, same. Mm, yeah. Uh, okay. Where have you been all my life? Like. <laughs> <laughs> Akron, Ohio, brother. On our next episode, we'll be ranking the top five highest grossing films of 2002, five through one, which includes Men in Black 2, Attack of the Clones, Spider-Man, Harry Potter and the Chamber of Secrets, and The Lord of the Rings, The Two Towers. I've really enjoyed this conversation with you. I, I think that you are a profoundly insightful uh, reviewer of film. And I think that you, uh, like I said, I think you have a much needed voice. Just where can we find you? What should, where should we follow you? How do we support you? All right. Well, uh, you know, before I give you all my uh, deets, I would just like to say uh, thank you so much, Jason, for the kind words, because I don't think I'll ever, you know, deserve all of that, especially when, you know, I've really made it clear to a lot of people that I would like to be an, e an eternal learner in terms mm -hmm. of, you know, the the cinematic arts, analyzing the cinematic arts more like. Uh, but thank you so, so much for, you know, for saying that it. Wow. Anyway, uh, my uh, my uh, socials, you know, I you know, I post my works on there or sometimes just, you know, food photos. I'm an amateur cook too. So, you know, uh, if you're interested in food over films, then, you know, I'm, I'm also your guy. Uh, <laughs> I'm on Twitter and recently it's a very similar clone, Spoutable, at NLE318. 
on uh, Facebook, I am win dot lay dot three three four. Yes, I do memorize that. How sad, right? <laughs> <laughs> and over on Instagram, I am uh, I am the v- Hoovy, which is uh, which is basically uh, a very uh, fun bilingual pun because uh, Viet and uh, Viet is Vietnamese, but V, which is Vietnamese for writing, also has the four same uh, letters. For oh, in wow. it, yeah, so V I E T. So it's T H E V I E T W H O V I E T. I don't know. You guys know how I feel about supporting people. So I, 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 I've, uh, I've embarrassed him enough with showers <laughs> of praise. So we'll just say until next time, binge on. <laughs> Thank you.